Hey, it's NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Andrew Limbaugh. Okay, so while I was on parental leave, I noticed that my reading tastes skewed towards thrillers. Like, don't get me wrong, I still love my meandering literary novels where, you know, like, not much really happens and it's mostly running off of vibes than anything else. But I'm not gonna lie, it's kind of hard to get through those, you know, if you were up at 3am holding a crying melting puddle of bones who doesn't feel like sleeping unless she's on you. So today on the pod, we're featuring two thrillers that I read on leave. In a bit, we'll hear from Joe Ide, who's just come out with the latest book in his IQ thriller series. But first, a thriller that takes place in the dark and seedy world of publishing. R.F. Kwong's novel Yellowface, which has become one of the big books of the summer. And in this interview with NPR's Mary Louise Kelly, Kwong cops to being scared of success, turning her into one of her unlikable characters. This message is brought to you by NPR sponsor, Progressive Insurance. You call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. Tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options within your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. The new novel, Yellow Face, is about a thief. Namely, June Hayward, a writer, not a particularly successful writer. The other key character is Athena Liu, a spectacularly successful writer. Now, these two went to Yale together. They are friends, kind of, until Athena dies by choking on a pancake with June watching and with the manuscript of her next book, a masterpiece that no one, not even her editor, has seen yet typed and neatly stacked in the next room. Well, the author of Yellow Face is R.F. Kwong, and I want to say welcome to All Things Considered. Thanks so much for having me. So in a nutshell, what happens next? Well, June decides to steal Athena's unpublished manuscript and pass it off as her own, all the while passing herself off as Chinese-American when she's not. And then we get into a roller coaster of all the absurdities about publishing, all the scandals, all the lies people tell, and the online pile-ons that happens when people are found to be guilty of wrongdoing. You nodded to something there that she tries to pass herself off as... Chinese-American. She changes her name, which was June Hayward. She publishes the book as Juniper Song, which could, you know, maybe be Asian. She gets this new author glamour shot where she looks really tan, like maybe racially ambiguous. Does she know what she's doing? She's extremely aware of what she's doing, and she's doing it deliberately. I think there is this strange myth that diversity is what's selling, and that in order to get opportunities, especially in hyper-competitive industries like publishing, you have to get your way through the door by pretending to be an ethnic identity that you don't have. Now, where this myth came from is puzzling to me because we know from industry reports every year it's still overwhelmingly in your advantage to be white in publishing. But we see over and over again white writers adopting monikers that make them sound Asian or make them sound non-white or have different backgrounds. That makes me wonder, what is it about a different racial identity that 
can be commodified and turned into something that makes you exotic and special and marketable. Mm. Um, I mean, she has, by the time the book is published, rewritten significant portions of it, created wholly original new portions of it. She's done the research. She's added so much she starts to forget which words actually she wrote and which words were originally Athena's. On a certain level... Is she the author, or does, does she deserve at least co-billing? June feels strongly that she should be able to publish this book under her own name because she's the one who got it into publication shape. And on some level, she's right. The original manuscript was messy. It was incomplete. So the final product isn't Athena's alone. It would have been fair for them to share credit. June isn't being completely delusional when she thinks the final product is something that she gets to claim. People may be gathering June is not the most likable character. (laughs) She's not the most (laughs) likable narrator. Why did you want to write her? I love writing unlikable narrators, but the trick here is it's much more fun to follow a character that does have a sympathetic background, that does think reasonable thoughts about half the time, because then you're compelled to follow their logic to the horrible decisions they are making. I'm also thinking a lot about a very common voice in female led psychological thrillers because I I always really love reading widely around the genre that I'm trying to make an intervention in. And I noticed there's this voice that comes up over and over again. And it's a very nasty, condescending protagonist that you see repeated across works. And I'm thinking of protagonists like the main character of Gone Girl, the main character of The Girl in the Window. I am trying to take all those tropes and inject them all into, again, a singular white female protagonist who is deeply unlikable and try to crack the code of what makes her so interesting to listen to regardless. Yeah. Um, Athena is not the most likable character either, um, aside from the fact that she dies pretty early in the book. We glimpse a lot of who she was through kind of flashbacks. I, I saw where you said... She's your worst nightmare, that she's all the things you hope will never be true of yourself. How so? Athena's kind of a brat. She's also a terrible friend. I really wanted to subvert the idea of a perfect, innocent victim. I wanted to turn the question around and ask, can we talk about appropriation and stealing stories when we remove it from the question of race? And Athena has done quite a lot of stealing each other's stories. She did something very cruel to June when they were undergrads that really has no ethical excuse. Now, the part of her that I'm terrified of becoming is is the part that is so isolated and narcissistic about her own success that she loses any touch with her community. Almost every other Asian American character in the novel does not have very nice things to say about Athena either. And it's because she had this Cinderella story of overnight celebrity and it's messed with her head a bit. And she's used to being the only Asian American in the room. She's used to being the special token and she views anyone else as a threat. She doesn't want to be a supportive member of her own community. And that's horrifying to me. I hope that never becomes true of me. The sly winked at, never quite said out loud joke here is you have written a novel about a white woman who writes about Chinese people and gets slammed for cultural appropriation. Um, It does not escape my notice that you are an Asian woman who is writing a man character who is white. 
were you deliberately stirring the pot, trying to invert all the questions about appropriation and racism and who gets to write which stories? Oh, yeah. I think it's hilarious that all of our assumptions about who gets to do cultural appropriation or when something counts as cultural appropriation kind of go away when you invert who is of what identity. And I think that a lot of our standards about cultural appropriation, our language about don't write outside of your own lane, you can only write about this experience if you've had that experience, I don't think they make a lot of sense. I think they're actually quite limiting and harmful and backfire more often on marginalized writers than they push forward conversations about widening opportunities. You would see Asian American writers being told that you can't write anything except about immigrants trauma or or the difficulties of being Asian American in the U.S. And I think that's anathema to what fiction should be. I think fiction should be about imagining outside our own perspectives, stepping into other people's shoes and empathizing with the other. So I, I really don't love arguments that reduce people to their identities or set strict permissions of what you can and can't write about. And, and I'm playing with that argument by doing the exact thing that June is a accused of writing about an experience that isn't hers. We've been speaking with R.F. Kwong. Her new novel is Yellow Face. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This was a delight. This message comes from NPR sponsor Sun and Ski Sports. They're celebrating National Bike Month in May with a big giveaway. Enter in-store to win a Cannondale Trail mountain bike or online to win a Haro Flightline 1 mountain bike. Cycling isn't just transportation. It's a boost for physical and mental health. Join them for Bike to Work Week from May 13th to 19th. Make every ride count this National Bike Month. Gear up at Sun and Ski Sports, where adventure begins. Visit sunandski.com. So the thing about voice and identity and race and quote-unquote authenticity is that it's it's all complicated, right? Like, of course you're allowed to write outside of your own identity. There's no, like, tribunal that dictates who can do what. But how do you do it well? How do you make it sound like you actually know what you're talking about and aren't just some tourist? Joe Ide grapples with that. His long-running IQ series is centered around Isaiah Quintabe, a black PI in Los Angeles. The latest in the series, titled Fix It, just came out in May. Now, Ide isn't black, but in 2017, Karen Grigsby-Bates, formerly of NPR's Code Switch team, spoke with Ide about finding his voice. And Karen picks it up from here. Joe Ide and I are standing where he grew up in the 60s with his parents and grandparents on busy Adams Boulevard, south of downtown L.A. My grandparents lived here because it was close to Little Tokyo. Mm-hmm. And... Um, other Japanese families had fled to the suburbs, but they couldn't afford to move. And um, my family lived with them because we were just scraping by. So it was three generations of us under one roof. The Ides were the only Japanese family in the neighborhood. His immigrant grandparents kept to themselves. His parents were often at work, which left Joe and his two brothers running around with the neighborhood kids. Most of our friends were black. Just kids from around here, kids from the neighborhood. Everybody was pretty much the same. I think poverty sort of, sort of leveled the playing field. The family's wooden home was torn down years ago, but there are a number of places that are still here, like this shrine. That was where my first girlfriend lived. She was a head and a half taller than me and outweighed me by 40 pounds. Somebody said that when we held hands, it looked like 
Uh, she was a ventriloquist with a Japanese puppet. Joe Ide is 59 years old, small, with a shock of graying hair and bright bird-like eyes that don't miss a thing behind his glasses. I don't know what it is now. That right on the corner used to be a Chinese school. We passed the ratchet corner store that he and his two brothers used to patronize after school. It was run by a sour-faced Chinese proprietor who became the basis for Tommy Lau, a gangster who appears in Ide's second book. I think he owned uh, a chain of these. He would show up in a Lincoln Continental in a suit, and if he was unhappy with somebody, he didn't say anything. He just looked at him until they either imploded or burst into flames. Ide borrowed from himself a bit to create his hero, Isaiah Quintabe, or IQ. IQ is a high school dropout whose keen intelligence and restless spirit enable him to work as a homemade private eye in his East Long Beach neighborhood. It's a little noisy. Maybe let's walk down this way and around the corner. Okay. Ide kind of floated through high school, not part of the usual tribes, and not motivated to get more than okay grades. Motivation kicked in in college, where he earned a bachelor's degree, then a master's in education. He told me the plan was to teach, but there was one little problem. I discovered I really didn't like kids. They were noisy and fussy, you know, they kept asking me questions. He lasted for a semester, then was a university lecturer. Didn't like that either. After that, a string of jobs, everything from business consultant to apartment manager. Nothing felt right. Ide says he was always restless, looking for something he couldn't define, except this way. I just didn't want to solve a problem that somebody else put in my lap. He says he'd wanted to write for years and finally decided to try it. He wrote screenplays on spec and was lucky enough to have an agent friend who critiqued his work. He listened to the criticism, learned, and after a dozen failures... Finally, I wrote a good one. And it sold at Disney and I started to work. Writing screenplays was profitable. Ide did it for years, then finally burned out. What he really wanted to do was write books... So he took a deep breath, quit screenwriting and those lovely paychecks, and got down to business. What I recall is is sitting at my desk in my pajamas, typing a lot, um, talking to my dog and dripping taco juice on my keyboard. The result was IQ, which introduced readers to Isaiah Quintabe. Isaiah is smart, driven, and angry. He's traumatized by the still-unsolved hit-and-run death of his older brother Marcus, his only family. Joe Ide says while Isaiah tries to find the driver who killed Marcus, he works for people in his neighborhood. He takes the cases that the police can't or won't get involved with, and he charges people whatever they can afford, which is usually something like a sweet potato pie or a live rooster. Who is now his personal alarm clock, Alejandro. In IQ, Isaiah is hired to find the would-be killer of a rapper, Black the Knife. Black has no interest in joining Biggie and Tupac in the great beyond. The caper goes from Black's suburban McMansion to the L.A. Marina, where Isaiah foils a kidnapper who snatched a Latina child for very perverse purposes. In Righteous, we get to know Isaiah's former classmate Dodson, a cranky pragmatist with a genius for the barely legal side hustle. The two are in Las Vegas tracking the disappearance of a cute, gambling-addicted DJ. She owes a lot of money to a Chinese gangster who sounds an awful lot like the guy who owned that corner store where Joe Ide grew up. Thank you all so much. At a reading at Essawan Books in Los Angeles, Ide tells his audience sometimes he writes what didn't happen to him growing up. So when I was writing about 
Isaiah and Marcus and their relationship, I was writing about the relationship I didn't have with my brothers, but wish for, and, and to a certain extent still do. The people at Essawan are mostly African-American and passionate about books. When asked Ide how he got the book's black voices so accurately, he credits his old hood with giving all three Ide boys a good dose of flavor. We were all, you know, pretending to be black. <laughs> we never fooled anybody. <laughs> In truth, Ide says, his outsider status has served him well. I was this murky fringe kid, you know. I mean, I wasn't black and I wasn't white. <laughs> and I'm way far from being Japanese. <laughs> so I'm, I'm always on, on the edges, you know, watching, listening, but not really in the mix. Being out of the mix and being able to believably embrace cultures beyond his own has resulted in critical praise and a contract to turn IQ into a series for cable. But Joe Ide's learned his lesson about screenplays. He's letting somebody else do that. He's concentrating on the future adventures of Isaiah Quintabe. Karen Grigsby-Bates, NPR News. That's it for this week on NPR's Book of the Day. If you want more, you can sign up for our newsletter at npr.org slash newsletter slash books. I'm Andrew Limbong. The podcast is produced by Isabella Gomez-Armiento and edited by Megan Sullivan. Our founding editor is Petra Mayer. Show elements for this week were produced and edited by Lennon Sherborne, Shannon Rhodes, Gabriel Sanchez, Sarah Handel, Todd Muntz, Emiko Tamagawa, Stacey Vanek Smith, Elena Burnett, Mallory Yu, Justin Richmond, and Steve Drummond. Beth Donovan is our managing editor. Thanks for listening. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Homes.com. When you're home shopping as a parent, you have lots of questions about local schools. That's why each listing on Homes.com includes extensive reports on local schools, including photos, parent reviews, student-teacher ratio, school rankings, and more. The information is from multiple trusted sources and curated by a dedicated in-house research team. It's also you can make the right decision for your family. Homes.com. We've done your homework. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath Learning Format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Listening to the news can feel like a journey, but the 1A podcast guides you beyond the headlines and cuts through the noise. Listen to 1A, where we celebrate your freedom to listen by getting to the heart of the story together, only from NPR. NPR.